0: Welcome to Adaptify, I'm Mike, I'm a paraplegic from New Zealand and it's my mission to find the Adaptifiers of the world, people who have overcome challenges and found new creative interesting ways to be free despite needing to use a wheelchair for their mobility. Hey, welcome back to the Adaptify Podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Before I introduce today's guest, I just wanted to give a massive shout out to everybody that follows us on social media, particularly on Instagram and Facebook, and you know, really just comments and likes and shares. You guys rock! You know, by doing so, you're helping us spread the word, and you are increasing freedom for the Adaptive community. That's our mission and by engaging and helping us share the word, you are also a part of that journey. So thanks so much. If you haven't uh, seen us on social media, be sure to check us out at Adaptify and also check out our YouTube channel because uh, just recently I went on an awesome adventure uh, with my family and I think you'd love the, the vlog that we made. It's nothing by comparison to the guest today. Today's guest is Karen Dark and she is the leader in adaptive expeditioning. She's hand cycled across multiple continents. She's skied across ice caps. She's climbed mountain peaks. She's sea kayaked up to Alaska. I mean, just phenomenal what she's been able to achieve in her life. She's also a performance coach, uh, has an MBE from the Queen. She's an author. Oh man, I don't even know where and how she's packed so much into her life. She's been paralyzed for 25 years and that has not stopped her one bit. I can't wait to chat with you today, Karen. Thanks so very much for joining me on the Adaptify podcast.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Hey, so first off, Karen, uh, can you let our listeners know why it is you're part of this adaptive community and, and so what? What, uh, what was your life like before you had your accident?
1: So I had a rock climbing accident when I was 21, so that's a little while ago now. I think I've been in a wheelchair for about 25 years. I suppose I was quite active before that. Well, I was. I grew up with parents who took me out into the hills, hiking, and then as a teenager, I got really keen, keen on climbing and running and just really any kind of excuse or way of being in the mountains I guess my heart is very much in the in the summits and in the hills so yeah having a rock climbing accident at 21 I was leading the climb to so the first up it and should have just come down it was too steep for me and too hard for me but I my ego was like no I want to I want to climb it so yeah basically I, I fell off and um, woke up three days later to discover I was paralyzed from the chest down so I guess it was beginning of a whole new life, and initially one which I wasn't really too excited about because all the things that I love to do seemed like they wouldn't be possible anymore.
0: Yeah, I, I, I had had similar experience. So, uh, yeah, I mean it's a long time ago, and, and often the the bad times are you know just fade into the background. But could you describe for our listeners, uh, you know, one of those particularly dark moments and how you how you know what. What helped you turn that around?
1: Um, I mean, the darkest moments for me f- from my in my memory were those when I was moved out of intensive care. I was in intensive care for a month um, into a spinal injuries hospital where I was suddenly surrounded by other people in wheelchairs and the reality of what had happened and the fact that I was facing life in a wheelchair became suddenly very stark and real. And sort of sleeping was like a dream and waking up was like a nightmare kind of thing. My dreams were full of memories of wonderful things and being in mountains. I'd wake up and be in this hospital surrounded by um, the, the reality of what lay ahead. So I remember that being really difficult for, I, I don't mean to sound trite, but for a few weeks because I think what happened was that I realised being in the spinal injuries hospital that I was surrounded by people, some in more fortunate positions than my own who'd broken their spines but could still walk and then others who were in more challenging positions who had more severe levels of paralysis or perhaps couldn't breathe on their own and I started to think you know what I there's still things I can do and whatever situation we're in in life I realize there's still things we can do. A very close friend of mine actually didn't climb for a few months after my accident And he went climbing two months, I think it was, after my accident, and he didn't come back from that climbing trip. He died. And I think that, for me, was a huge kick up the backside to make me kind of wake up and go, hey, for whatever reason, you're alive, you're here, you have a life still, and you need to make the most of it. And stop focusing on all the things that you can't do anymore and all... Things that are difficult and start thinking about things that you can still do or that you know discover new things that you might be able to do. So, I think in many ways, just kind of a reassessment of my situation and starting to appreciate what I still had rather than focusing on what I didn't have really helped me turn things around and, and focus on kind of a new life and moving forward.
0: So, yeah, I, I'm I'm as the same. I was in a Brisbane spinal unit in Australia and there was a guy. Um, Liam was his name and he broke his neck he fell off a roof broke his neck and he couldn't at that point even excuse me at that point even uh, hug his his daughter and uh, that was Mm -hmm. me you know a a bit of a wake up to to my situation where I, I you know I could do that I had full use of my upper body and um And I started to look for things like you said that that you could do. So for you, what uh, what were some of those things that you that you uh, first realised that that maybe you could uh, you could do again?
1: Well, you know, before moving on to that, I think it's important to think about people in that situation that can't, you know, maybe can't hug the children and are thinking, well, hey, I can't see anyone in a worse position than me. because I've often thought about being in that position. I did break my neck as well, but I was fortunate not to break the spinal cord in my neck. So mm. I was very close to being in that situation myself. And for a while I thought, you know, if I'm so bad, I've am so i got the use of my arms because there is so much more I can do. And of course, that is a blessing and I am happy for that. But I also have come to realize that whatever situation we find ourselves in, whether we can move our arms or not, hook our children or not, what you know, whatever it might be, that... There's still reason, I I think there's still always reason to, to have hope, but there's still always things you can do, there's still always things to focus on and to live for and to find enjoyment in. So, you know, I suppose we come from a world, or I certainly came from a world which, and still live in a world which is very physical, I, I love to exercise and use my body. But I also know now, after years of being in my position and having lost function of my arms at various times for various reasons and injuries that, you know, I know that I could also be, ha- I could also find meaning and purpose and happiness without the use of my arms as well. And um, I hope I don't have to, but yeah, I think it's just uh, important to remember that. So yeah, I, I suppose I did what many, what maybe many people do. I, I was fortunate to be in a spinal hospital where there were, was a lot of sports being we were being exposed to a lot of different sports and activities i started going sailing every week with the physio i was fortunate to still have a lot of friends many of my friends still engaged in outdoor activities and the kind of things that i used to like doing and they were all keen to help me get back into the outdoors and try different things whether it be canoeing or you know adapted mountain biking or sailing or gliding or i just went crazy doing every activity i possibly could try I think in some ways, as a distraction and an exploration of what was possible in this new world, until I eventually settled on some activities that I found I really, really
0: enjoyed. It's really interesting that you say that you tried everything possible. I I did more or less the same. I tried to do everything I used to do. So, uh, you know, I learned to surf again, I learned to ski, um, I did the New York Marathon and a hand cycle, you know, all of these things. And then it was almost as if once I tried some of those things, I could put them uh, to rest. So, you know, for example, I don't go surfing that much anymore, but I know I can do it and I'm I'm kind of satisfied with that. Um, and, you know, you say that you, you tried many, many things and some of those things certainly, I'm sure, would not have felt the same as they did before your accident. And for me, part of exploring those things was actually recovery, psychological recovery in a way. It, it helped me come to terms with the fact that some of those things were no longer... As I remembered them, and maybe I wouldn't enjoy them going forward. But I discovered, you know, I discovered new things that were were amazing and did uh, light my fire, so to speak. So, so what was one of those things for you that uh, that really lit your fire?
1: Well, obviously, cycling was one of them. (laughs) That's what I've I've gone on to spend my life doing, really. But um, yeah, so hand cycling, but also any really sea kayaking is really been a big part of my life and um, not recently but very much so for many years and then equally skiing it's not now a big part of my life at the moment but it has been and it will be again because it's just a way to be in the mountains and up there in those summits which I love to be in so yeah those are kind of the activities which have fallen to me as uh, core things that that keep me sane and healthy and happy.
0: So when when people out there listening are thinking of skiing and and um, sea kayaking things like that, they may not realise that you you took those things to the you know to the extreme level. So um, can you can you tell us a little bit about Greenland and um, and, and using your skis to uh, for for that adventure, and then maybe we'll talk a bit about uh, sea kayaking and other adventures that you've had.
1: Well, I suppose I began downhill skiing in the mountains with an organisation in Britain who take people with spinal cord injuries on ski courses, an organisation called Back Up, and I was absolutely terrible at it, fell over all the time and paralysed from the chest down, so I've got no sort of core muscles and balance. quite poor balance, so it took me a long time to learn. But I did eventually, and I love to do it, but then I thought, hey, it'd be good to try cross-country skiing and find a way to be away from the noise of lifts and people and just properly kind of more in the wilderness. So the first time I really... Well, I did try it once in America, but the first time I really... Kind of immersed myself in it, was with some friends who live in Finland. My friend's married to a Finnish guy up in Lapland and we went over and spent um, some time there over New Year, which was miserable, to be honest. Apart from the company, that was good, but it was dark <laughs> the whole time and very, very icy. And I was so bad at it because you know, just total lack of core muscles. I couldn't control the sit-ski. I was just falling over all the time, crashing. And you'll know that being... Um, with complete paraplegia, at least you can't control your body temperature. So below chest level, I don't sweat, but equally can't retain the heat. So it was a pretty miserable holiday. And at the end of it, I just thought, oh, I don't think I'll be doing that again. But my Finnish friend had thought it was great. And he said, but we should try something harder. Why don't we try and ski across Greenland? And it just seemed like the most ridiculous idea at the time. But I have got this genetic Defects or problem it seems that <laughs> if someone puts an idea into my head and it involves adventure and uncertainty and you know
0: pain and suffering kind of that, by the sound of it something some, some,
1: something like that then I am um, I'm like oh well maybe that will be quite interesting so um yeah two years of of planning and and training and exploring followed and eventually the, we did ski across Greenland from the east coast to the west coast which took a month um obviously you're in the middle of an ice cap no support just the four of us uh, no six of us a team of six just off our own back just carrying all our own food and fuel to survive and living out there in the wilderness and I couldn't have done it without um a couple of friends in the group who were, cl- were clearly highly adept at surviving in wilderness places because I didn't in cold places because I didn't have those skills, but yeah along with them and two years of training and planning it was quite an incredible adventure probably remains one of the toughest physically and psychologically that I've ever done Um, but also one of the most incredible because just to be to be paralyzed sometimes you're kind of fairly in a world of concrete and tarmac and so on but out there We were just out there on the ice cap with nature and nothing, and it was really quite incredible experience.
0: Wow. Okay, I I want to unpack that a little bit. You've, you know, basically you're you're in a um, in a seat attached as a couple of skis beneath you, and you've got poles, right? And you're so basically you're pushing yourself along with your arms. And
1: yeah, so it's a a cross-country sit ski. It's a tight-fitting seat that your bum squeezes into. Mounted onto two parallel skis, kind of normal backcountry skis, and then propelling yourself with cross-country ski poles. That you propel forward, lunge into the snow, and then pull with all your might, and you move a whole couple of inches with each effort. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, do your ski, the most
1: unrewarding activity ever?
0: Do your skis have uh, skins on the bottom of them, or are they uh, just just normal skis without um, without a, a, a skin? A skin?
1: No, so no skins because it's too much friction really when you're moving with the okay. arms. So, it was um, regular kind of narrow backcountry skis, but with wax on so that you had a little bit of grip, but not so much that it made the friction too much to move with arm power.
0: Okay, so some uh, nitty gritty now. How did you how did you manage your bowel and bladder while you're doing all that? What on earth? How did how did that all work out?
1: Bladder-wise, I have a super pubic catheter, so it's um, fairly easy to manage in wilderness situations
0: mm.
1: what I was worried about was that anything coming disconnected because clearly you don't want to have a, any leaks in that sort of place and um, it's not like you can just throw things in a washing machine so I basically sealed every single join in the system between catheters and valves etc with tape, with cloth tape to make sure nothing would come and done And I also washed my bladder out morning and night with bladder washers, which I had to keep in my sleeping bag with me because otherwise they would freeze. Mm. Um, Just to make sure there were no blockages and no issues with anything going on on that front. And then obviously make sure at all times when you squeeze into a sit-ski and there's possibilities for kinks in catheters, everything was running smoothly with no chance of anything getting kinked or Causing a blockage or anything, um so that was easy. That was relatively easy on that front, and fortunately there were no leaks and no incidents. So I was very lucky.
0: What about freezing? Um, you know, the freezing in the tubes. Like, you know, if, if you've ever had a camelback in, on the on the mountain, you know that can freeze up or quite often freezes up. Yeah, how, how did that work?
1: um Well, I think yeah. You mean in terms of your catheter?
0: Yeah, exactly. So, suprapubic, you've got you've got a leg bag or a permanent tube coming out, is there? Yeah, well yeah, it's
1: it's so cl- it's so close to your body all the time. It's like right next to your skin, and you've got all your clothes on the outside, so it's insulated from the cold, and it's being okay. kept a bit warm by your body heat. So the only time I would notice it would be waking up in the morning in the sleeping bag. the The pee in a catheter bag might be a little bit slushy because it's got quite cold in the air inside the sleeping bag. But mm. during the day when everything's really close to your skin, you've got all your clothes there and you're working hard, then everything, you know, there was no problems with everything, anything freezing up on that front. But clearly drinking water, I was making sure I drank a lot as well, but drinking water would freeze easily. So that had to be in, in an insulated bottle with kind of a neoprene cover and um, just keep drinking regularly so that it didn't keep it in your body, close to your body as well, so that it had the best chance of not freezing, so you could always drink.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Um, mm-hmm.
1: bowel, bowel wise, that was clearly much more challenging. Most people on the ice cap would squat and hover somewhere away from the tent, and there were various discussions about what to do with the excrement in the most environmentally friendly way whether you should dig a hole and bury it or whether you should smear it over the ice so that the sun dries it and <laughs> then the wind blows it away but that was another matter that was like an environmentally friendly what's the best way to do it thing um for me I couldn't risk being out there on the ice cap with my backside exposed to the wind for an hour or whatever it takes me just a toilet. It's not like you you will be aware that it's not necessarily a five minute job anymore. So um, I would basically the tent we had we had it made so there was a special velcro flap on the in the floor inside the tent, so you could mm. lift that up. I didn't actually need to use that in the end because once you get the stove going in the tent, it was warm enough in the porch of the tent rather than kind of the inner inner bit mm. to use the kind of porch area as a toilet area. So our tent had two ends. So one end was a cooking end and the other end was my toilet end. Um, basically just dig a big hole in the, in the snow. And then I had a special kind of toilet seat thing that I made that um, – well, that yeah was was supplied actually by um a company that makes such things called equal adventure developments and that had snow feet and so it wouldn't sink into the snow and i sat on this seat above a big pit in the snow and just basically pooed there <laughs> um clearly keeping regular not having accidents in that department was also essential so I would always go in the evening rather than the morning. So I didn't feel under pressure that was holding the team back that I could make sure it was properly, properly done before getting off too soon and risking anything. Um, And yeah, when you're eating expedition style food, which is dried food in a bag that you pour hot water on, that can sort of play havoc in that department a bit. So just uh, being mindful of all of that and trying to manage it. But I, again, I was fortunate and everything went smoothly and, no problems but yeah wow. <laughs> they were they were definitely they were definitely two of the big challenges that uh, to solve in terms of being in that extreme environment and being really aware that any accidents in those departments wasn't just a matter of inconvenience and annoyance it was could potentially be a matter of you know serious injury or or worse so had to just be really on it with those things.
0: Yeah, I'd imagine that bladder infections are, uh, you know, one of those things. Uh, I know you had one of those uh, recent, on a recent trip in, in India, and I'd like to talk to you more about that, or maybe it was Morocco. But, yeah, so have you got any any tricks on, uh, on you know, keeping your bladder in good health and, and all?
1: So, yeah. Um... And an ice cap is not an issue because there's really not much up there that's alive. <laughs> there's very, there's not many bacteria around in the middle of a very, very cold ice cap. There's certainly no people to catch things from. So I didn't really have any problems in that environment. It's all very clean. But, yeah, as soon as you throw yourself into the middle of India or Africa, um, it's a different matter. So um, if I'm travelling in somewhere more dirty shall I say <laughs> I'm not suggesting that you know those countries specifically are any dirty anywhere else but when you're when you when you're got more risk of infection I try and keep everything clean and disinfect my hands a lot and clean around catheters every day with with um antiseptic or just you know hand gel I usually use just that standard kind of hand gel just to keep everything clean mm. um and I just follow the same practice as when I'm at home, but when I'm I'm more vigilant than ever probably. So things like washing my bladder out. Um, I do get problems with blockage, sometimes a lot of sediment, um, I think just related to the chemistry in my body and sometimes to the foods that I'm eating. But um if that's been bad I, I, when i'm if i'm away on an expedition type of thing or a big adventure I'll make sure that i wash my blood religiously morning and night sometimes even during the night when I wake up just to make sure that I don't get any problems with a blot catheter because the last thing you want is a sleeping bag full of um full of piss <laughs> that you've then got to sleep in for another few weeks or oh, whatever awesome. so so yeah on that front I just that's I, I'm not I'm not doing things like intermittent catheterization, so I've not got the same risk of picking up infections that people using that method would have potentially. But it's just the same as anywhere. It's all about hygiene and just being, doing the best that you can to stay on top of things. But I always make sure I've got spares of everything with me. I can obviously change my own catheter, so yeah, that there's been various incidents where I'm suddenly changing a catheter in a very, very random, quite challenging location in some field or whatever. And they're like, <laughs> okay, keep your head together, keep your hands clean, just go through the motions here. And, you know, most things, if you're just logical and don't panic, that you can sort them out. Um, but I did have an incident recently, which was interesting. Um, I had to change the way I managed my bowels in the last few years. Um, from using enemas to using water and i'd never thought about it because i'd never traveled in a in a country where the water is potentially contaminated since i've been using that this kind of bowel irrigation machine um and i was in ethiopia earlier this year and we were staying in unusually for me we weren't camping in the wilds so we were actually staying in kind of places along the way and um, some of them actually quite nice hotels and I was just happily filling my irrigation machine with water from the tap warm water forgetting that I was drinking bottled water but putting basically <laughs> tap water at my bottom and then wondered why I suddenly got this horrendous infection and was shaking in the night and realized that I basically had a bad blood infection going on um that I believe I'd acquired through contaminated water that I'd put um, been putting into my bowels. So yeah, that was a bit of a wake up call and a reminder that um if you're gonna be drinking bottled water anywhere else that you're putting volumes of water into your body, you also need to be putting sterile water in. So that was a good yeah, a good learning curve because luckily I uh, got to an Ethiopian hospital, got antibiotics, and I, I, things resolved themselves fairly quickly. But it was a pretty horrific three or four days before that.
0: Wow, yeah, I would never have thought about that, and uh, and I'm sure you know there's probably not too many people out there that will face that situation. But you never know. That's a, that's a really good point.
1: Um, no and also even when it was occurring i I didn't immediately think of it because the the temperatures were wild there we we had like 40 we were cycling in 47 degrees and we had some days where cycled like nearly a couple of hundred kilometers in a day sort of 10 hours of riding in 47 degrees and i just thought i had a a extreme reaction to the heat and the exercise and the combination of all that and i just thought i've picked up like a you know, if you, when you're paraplegic, if you get cold, you can't stop shivering. It takes you a long mm. time to to warm up again. And I thought, OK, well, I'm not used to hot environments, but this is the opposite. I've got too hot and my body's reacting and having this strange kind of <laughs> this fever. So I was just like covering myself in bags of ice for a few days until I finally realized, hey, you know, my fever's come down. But this, the shakes and everything else is still happening. What is going on here? And then that's when I connected that it was a an, an infection, etc.
0: Wow. Holy moly. So, okay. So Greenland, that was an amazing trip. What was one of the next adventures you, uh, you had, I mean, you've, you've done some climbing and, and when people think about a paralyzed person climbing that, I am not even sure what picture comes to mind, but, uh, but, but the sort of climbing you were doing was, uh, you know, it was, <laughs> you know, it was really difficult stuff. Um, you know, can you describe uh, one one or, or a few of those climbs?
1: Yeah, well, like you say, I'm not sure you'd really call it climbing in the traditional sense. It's um, obviously when you can't move two thirds, three quarters of your body, climbing up rock faces isn't really a goer in the way that you would do it normally. So um, my ex-boyfriend was a big climber. He climbed El Capitan in Yosemite in America a lot. And he suggested I go climbing again. And to be honest, initially, I was completely against it. I was clearly I'd had a rock climbing accident I'd lost friends in climbing accidents. I was, uh, I've become, I realized, I, I, I realized quite quickly when I went and did a few climbs with him that I was scared of heights now. Um, but I also had this kind of attraction to try and overcome the fear that I had there and, and rediscover this world that I'd once loved being in and just see if I could find it in a new way. So, um, I agreed to go and climb El Capitan in Yosemite and, uh, absolutely blew my mind to see it and then to start climbing it it's just so enormous it's a kilometer high overhanging wall of rock um and yeah the plan was it would take us about a week to climb it sleeping on a fabric ledge up there and um i understand you've climbed it yourself so you know what i'm talking about
0: <laughs> Very, yeah. but
1: cool. um I'd never, even before my accident, I'd never done mul- I'd done multi-pitch climbing, but I'd never done big wall climbing like that where you're sleeping up there and so on. So as well as kind of overcoming the fear of of heights and being back in this world of climbing, it was this whole new discovery of what it was like to do um multi-day climbing where you're up there for, you know, days on end lugging all your water and food up the wall too. So In the beginning, it was a massive mental process of overcoming the fear and finding ways to control my thought mind and be able to get to a place where I could enjoy being there. And I I did get to that place, fortunately. It was really quite incredible in the end. Um, But at the same time, it was this journey of, yeah, I suppose it was like, you know, someone revisiting a, a, a place or a thing they've done before to overcome some I felt like it was some kind of rite of passage that I needed to go there and revisit climbing and, um, and, and, and overcome the the emotion that I had around it. And yeah. Make, and I, and, I'm a, and I, and I love, I, yeah, make peace in a way. And but also I'm, I was a geologist and, you know, earlier in my life and I love rocks and to be able to touch rock and, have that contact with rock it felt really special and amazing and um I still have a strong connection with rock I don't rock, I haven't rock climbed for a number of years now but I live in Mallorca a lot of the time and the rock here is incredible just to see it like I was out this evening looking at these huge rock walls glowing in the sunset and it just fills me with the energy to see it so um yeah <laughs>
0: I've spent a bit of time in Mallorca as well, and, and rock climb there too. So I know exactly the landscape you're talking about. It's stunning, absolutely yeah. amazing. Um, so uh, yeah, climbing, holy, holy moly. Um, what about sea kayaking? Um, what what about sea kayaking appeals to you? And and what are some of the what are some of the tough elements that you've uh, you've had to you know mo- maybe modify or or some of the uh, adaptions you've had to make to make sea kayaking and particularly multi-day sea kayaking work for, for you as a paraplegic?
1: Mm-hmm. So yeah, my journey with sea kayaking is interesting. I kind of fell into it a bit by accident. I was in the outer Hebrides, which is some islands off the West coast of Scotland actually cycling and happened to come across um, some event that was going on. Like a, it was called a sea kayaking symposium. So a kind of multi-day thing of people going sea kayaking and before I knew it I was suddenly involved in getting in a double sea kayak and was kayaked I was going through the motions but I'm pretty sure the guy in the back of the kayak was doing most of it by a a guy I, I didn't know off to some kind of even smaller islands off the coast of the islands and it was just this incredible day out to be out in the ocean. It, that close to nature and I'm not a, I'm not a water baby I'm not I've never been particularly comfortable in water or on the sea but I really just loved that connection with nature that it gave and um I I became hooked I suppose and then I got really into going sea kayaking but always in a double because I didn't think my balance was good enough and then it was actually quite interesting because I a set up a group organizing adventure activities for people with different disabilities in Scotland and we got a summer program running and some got, we, we got a bit of funding to pay some instructors to be there to help different you know help people go out week-long trips doing sea kayaking and suddenly all these people came who were paralyzed and they were all going in single boats and I was suddenly like well hang on if they can go in a single boat, maybe I can too. <laughs> so it was fun it, interesting that something I organised to encourage people to get outside suddenly led to me having to question how I was doing it. And I thought, well, maybe I'll try a single sea kayak too. So um, with my level of balance, I needed to design, you get a backrest that would work and, fit different things into the kayak so that it gave you more stability sort of laterally and backwards. So I don't just fall backwards and mm. end up being completely laid down in the boat. And that's still always been, you know, it's, it's quite challenging to find something that fits and gives you that, um, the ability to generate power. What I found with sea kayaking is that because of my lack of sort of core muscles and the ability to rotate my core because of being paralyzed from the chest down, Um, I can get on really quite well in a single kayak until a certain level of wind. So maybe like a force three or four, as soon as it gets above a force four wind, I start to struggle to actually make headway into the wind, if you know what I mean, Mm because I can't kind of brace my body enough to really generate enough power. Um, so I'm safer on the sea in a double probably, and can certainly cope with far more, challenging weather conditions in a double kayak because you've got that extra power and strength of the person that you're in a boat with but a lot of my sea kayaking has been in a single sea kayak but i'm just a bit more mindful when i'm going solo not that i go on my own but you know what i mean if i'm in a single boat that um just being a bit more mindful of what the weather forecast is and if it's likely to kick up with a big wind which um living in scotland it certainly can do
0: <laughs> Yeah, definitely. living
1: anywhere it can do
0: so, uh, you know, no no wheelchair with you and presumably some sort of protection for your butt, uh, you know, for those listening that don't Yeah, know, so. You, uh, you, you go ahead.
1: Yeah, so I always um, – obviously pressure sores is a huge issue in any activity, but sea kayaking, kind of you might be sat there for hours on end all day and you don't want to be sat on a hard seat, so I always make sure it's lined with foam so it's nice and soft, but that's not enough because obviously the sheer friction, so I'm always – i always I always layer it up with some gel as well, so usually quite a thick layer or a couple of layers of some sort of gel protection, so that with the rotation, um, your bum's got plenty of padding and and protection against the shear and and the friction that can be caused by the seating position. I'd suggest anyone you know starting out don't go out on a massive long trip. Just get do a short trip, check your skin, make sure it's all right and find a solution that works for you to give yourself good padding. Make a mistake once, I had a couple of weeks holiday in um, sea kayaking in Sweden between the islands there and it was a, a, a kayak that we hired out there and I took some padding with me, but it really wasn't that sufficient given the, the, that the seat was a really solid plastic seat rather than a foam seat. Mm. And so, I, yeah, after a couple of weeks, I had developed some, not full-blown pressure sores, but enough that it was like, that's not good, get off it. And I had to sort of spend about three weeks laid on my tummy recovering from, from that trip. So, yeah, always just take care with pressure. That said, yeah. Um, Myself and another paraplegic guy that I know, and a bunch of friends who are sort of a mix of outdoor instructors and kayak instructors and outdoor lovers. We took an adventure for three months from Vancouver in Canada all the way up to Juneau in Alaska. So that was, I don't know how far it is, I can't even remember, but it was basically 10 weeks of paddling, no wheelchairs, sleeping on beaches super strong friends who were lugging us and kayaks up and down beaches every night. And <laughs> I was basically, we became the chief chefs because uh, we could just get the stoves going and make cups of tea and food all night while people were lugging kayaks up and down the beach and so on. But um, yeah, <laughs> that was, that was again a really, yeah, a really challenging journey to leave my wheelchair behind for that long. It was mentally, I, I, I thought, I don't know if I can do that. Like I am I nearly dropped out the week before you went because I was just completely freaked out by the idea of not having a wheelchair for that amount of time. Um, but actually, it's not really about needing the wheelchair. I think you know, you're on the water all day, so you've got movement and mobility. It was just that period at the beginning and the end of each day when suddenly you're completely relying on your teammates to pass you anything that you need or get you up the beach that... That was uh, psychologically challenging. So to find ways to 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 get around that and um, and be super organised so that you can know exactly what to ask for from where. Um, But also, I think it's important to feel that you're contributing to a team as well. You know, not being a burden in a team. So Mm. when you require that much help to you know get in the kayak in morning and night or whatever. Um, or always having to ask for people to pass you things. It felt important to be able to do something useful for the team. So I think that's why I quite like the role of kind of running the kitchen because at least it felt like I was contributing to everything that we needed to do to live and survive in the wilderness.
0: That's a really good point. I often struggle to ask for assistance and and I'm sure, I mean, I think it's a very common thing. Uh, and, yeah, so making yourself useful, finding finding yourself a role, and uh, you know, feeling as though you're contributing, I think's one of the one of those key things with uh, uh, with with asking for help. Um, I also have found that people are willing to help um, if you if you do ask. So, um, particularly if um, if you ask nicely or you know you're um, you're patient. Um, you know, I do remember actually oh, that- sea kayaking and and you know being very impatient (laughs) and, um, and it, you know, just didn't go down too well with, uh, with my wife. And, um, and so I went okay, all right, just, you know, just, just be chill and, um, and things, things will happen. Um, But, you know, it it can be frustrating having to wait for other people to, to do things uh, to assist you. What, um, what are some other ways you, you manage that?
1: I don't actually, I don't necessarily notice it as me feeling impatient, I suppose, when I when I'm in wilderness environments, I I know that when I'm choosing to put myself in that environment, I am going to be losing some of my independence, and that's a a, a choice I'm making in terms of choosing to be there. Mm. And I usually just feel really really grateful to the friends that I'm with that they're there with me and happy to go into that kind of environment with me, and really mindful that it is you know it is more work for them in a way because they're having to look after themselves in a in a wild environment which can be difficult enough but they're also then thinking about what you need or at least having to pass you or help you with what you need if if you know what I mean so um I usually don't have too many problems feeling frustrated I try and focus on the fact that it's a choice to be there and um and it's a privilege to be there with friends who are willing to be there with you and I think I have come to discover over the years that um it's okay, you know, none of us, whether we've got a disability or not, can do everything in this world. We all need to ask for help at times. And whilst it might be intensified when you've got a disability and you go into kind of an extreme situation where you've lost your independence or where you're out of your home environment, it's also really nice to help people so people don't mind. And if it, like you say, if it's, if you're not snapping at people and, and not feeling frustrated with people, then actually it's a privilege for people to be able to help as well. And I love it when people ask me to help them with things. It's, it's it's nice to be able to give as well as receive. So I think asking for help and giving help is just a natural part of life, which isn't always easy to do because we all want to be fiercely, so fiercely independent. And But actually it's a, a natural part of life and something that's really healthy to be able to do both ways. So, yeah, but when you've got a disability and you put yourself into that those kinds of environment where you know that, you're going to be more dependent on your friends or the people you, you're you with, then I think you have to be mindful of that choice that you've made and take with you some extra doses of of, of patience and chilled outness because um, it's a choice to be there with these people that want to be there with you. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> That's a great point. So, um, Karen, I'm, I'm intrigued. Uh, you, you're essentially a, you're a professional athlete, uh, professional adventurer. Um, when did you make... That choice, and how did you start? Um, how did you start to fund that? Um, you know, this this life that you've chosen, because um, uh, yeah, I mean, clearly sponsorship is a is a is a key part of it. But you know, f- how else did you manage to uh, to pull all these things together, all these adventures, and and your sporting career?
1: Yeah, to be honest, it's never been a, it's never really been a clear choice, and it's never been a, a hatched plan of of attack of how that would happen it's just, you know it's really not been um and it's not quite as clear as you maybe think or describe so the only clear choice I have made in terms of becoming an athlete was uh, in november 2011 one year out from the london paralympics i decided that i would not apply for any more work so i had my own business at that point in learning and development sort of training and coaching and that kind of thing mm. and i realized that if i was going to get to london i would need at least that year just to get my head down and focus so in the november a year well not even a year like 10 months out i suppose 9 months out I had work that was winding down, some contracts that had come to an end, and I consciously decided I'm not going to apply for more stuff right now because I want this next nine months to be able to be fairly focused on, you know, being available to train as hard as I can and do what I can to get to the Paralympics. Um, and so I was, prior to that, I sp- was not an athlete I didn't I'd done about two races and come last in them both um <laughs> I had obviously already got this life with adventures but what I've always been fortunate with is that adventures have always really much happened in my holiday time or I've had employers who've been willing to give me some leave like extended leave to do things so I did have a full-time job as a geologist, fortunately with a multinational company where there's enough capacity for people to stand in or step in and that three months out of work wasn't the be all and end all for, for, for the business. So prior to that decision in 20 at the end of 2011 to focus on the London Paralympics, I had just managed my ventures by working, paying for them myself, getting, myself, but getting time off to do things as and when I could. Um since then, I suppose winning a medal in the London Paralympics was was a surprise. And then it gave me the option to carry on being a full time athlete, because in Britain, if you win, win an Olympic medal, you have the option to get there's the possibility of funding from UK sports um, lottery money, which is allocated to aspiring well, people who've got podium potential in different sports. Mm. So I've essentially had a salary since then. Um, it's not a great salary in fact it would barely buy you a fancy hand bike but I still have <laughs> had my own business and, and work part-time so um, when I can I give I give talks and still do a bit of coaching work or bits of work where I can to keep myself going and I'm fortunate enough that with the with the funding from UK Sport alongside my own bits of work then it's enough to to manage and survive and and basically be a Near full time athlete and um, and fit in a few adventures in the off season as well. <laughs> so yeah, it's not it's not quite as uh, it's not quite as clear as something going. I'm going to make you know this my life and how I'm mm. going to fund it. Coming with some plan. It's just kind of happened organically and not really with any strategy. <laughs>
0: Oh, it's great. Uh, well, from from what I can see on your website, you have certainly packed uh, so much into your uh, tier life uh, since your injury. Um, cycling, let's talk a bit about cycling. So you're training now, I guess, for the Tokyo Paralympics. And, um, and also there's this thing called the Quest 79. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and where are you at with that?
1: Yeah, so um seventy-nine became this number that was cropping up in my life a lot. Just it started as a joke. I w I won't bore you with the details, but um there's I think the on my website. But then I happened to win when I won the gold medal in Rio, it happened to be the 79th medal for Britain. And I was like, oh, that's weird, because there's been a joke about number <laughs> 79 all summer. And then I forgot I'd forgotten because I'd spent years as a geologist, but um and studied gold. I, I'd done a postdoc in gold in south america but the atomic number of gold you know in the periodic table is 79 i was like god oh, that's weird too <laughs> seems like my whole life has been looking for in search of gold and uh and so I, I don't know where it came from but i just came up with this idea that i suppose as a climber lots of climbers do that you know the seven summits on the seven continents and i thought hey i really you like to like like my own version of that what can i do And I decided that I'd try and ride the seven continents in like a a significant ride on each country. Um, For some reason, most, they're all kind of connected with water. I've got an attraction to water, oceans and rivers and some things. Mm. They're natural features that seem obvious to follow. Um, And the nine is uh, nine rides, so one for each continent and two Paralympic Games, so... That became the project and raising £79,000 for the Spine Injuries Association. But it felt more important to me than because I've, you know, I've done so many adventures. It's like, well, I'm not interested in, I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not, I've got, I'm not trying to prove anything here. It's not really about me. This is just something I want to do. And I had this idea that I'd try and encourage other people to do their own Quest 79. So something that stretched themselves, challenged themselves, helped them find their inner goals not wanting to sound corny but you know 79 mm. being the, the, the symbol of gold um and so some really cool things have been happening like a 10 year old boy in scotland has just finished a few weeks ago climbing 79 peaks in 79 weeks so he heard me talk oh, on the radio wow. told his mom and dad who don't even like mountain climbing they want to climb 79 mountains in 79 weeks and raise money for a children's charity in africa so he's done that and there's been tons of other really cool things going on people that I've been doing things that they would just never normally do, or you know, taking up sport and and doing things that they just never would have considered before. So it's been really an incredible thing for for me to that's given back back. To me, actually, because it's really inspired me. Like Rowan, this kid who's just done the 79 Mountains, there's been times the last few years when I've been like, really? Do I really want to do another Paralympics? I'm not sure. Da, da, da. And I keep thinking of him going out every weekend in rain and snow. And I think, hey, I'll just go, just just give it another go, keep going. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know whether I'll make it to Tokyo or not. I'm hoping. I've um, I kind of had burnout after Rio. I think I just focused too much, get work, train, just. Plunged mm-hmm. myself into training to a point where it was not really healthy anymore. And I have taken a step back and I've really kind of decided, you know what, I, I, I do another one. I want to do it in a way that's more balanced and sustainable and healthy. So that's what I'm trying to do. And so the last couple of years, I've been really enjoying training and life and didn't do very well in the races last summer compared to how I have in the past. But Um, I'm going to see how it goes this year and I hope that, I kind of just have this belief that if you're doing things in a balanced, healthy way, then surely you can do even better because your body, you know, you're nurturing your body a little bit rather than torturing it so I'd like to think that performance is still possible when you're nurturing yourself, not just when you're torturing yourself (laughs) so (laughs) it's an experiment in progress and if it gets me to Tokyo then it'll be my honour to participate in another games where I've uh, had more nurturing, not torturing. And if I don't, then, hey, it's not for me anymore, so we'll see.
0: <laughs> wow. Okay, well, that, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a really great way of uh, of, of looking at it. And uh, I guess you understand your body, you understand your mind incredibly well and and listening to that because I think when you don't listen to that, things don't seem to go so well. I mean, that's, you know, essentially uh, I attribute that to my, my accident. I wasn't in balance and I was seeking yeah. – um, I was seeking freedom in in an unhealthy way, and so yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's incredibly important that you do listen to your your mind and your body, and and you're doing it for all the right reasons, um, not just uh, because you've done it in the past or because you've got sponsors you need to keep happy or because you know there's expectations that yeah. you think the public have or. You know, and, and I think it's often the, the tricky thing when you become a sponsored athlete. Um, you know, you take what you used to love and you, you've got all these other pressures that are that are on you. And uh, and it, it can be, um, you know, at one point I was a sponsored climber and all of a sudden I was doing things that were way riskier just because I felt like I had to um, mm-hmm. do so for, for my image and my sponsors and all these things. And, um, you know, you, you can... Really get out of balance and out of whack. So, so I'm pleased to hear that you're you know you're aware of that and you're um, taking action to. Um...
1: Yeah, I mean to, to be honest, I've luckily never. I, I am fortunate to have some support for the Quest 79 project from Adidas and another company in Britain called Brawn who make catheters and medical devices. But I've never felt any kind of sponsorship pressure from anywhere. And. Um, I can't remember who it was. I had this a famous person, someone like Gandhi, but it might not be him. Who said, you know, if you, are if what you're thinking, what you, what is, what you're saying and what you're doing are in harmony, then that's that's happiness. And I think it's very true. And I'm really conscious um that if my when when I had my accident, my thoughts were all screaming at me, get down off this cliff, this is ridiculous, it's too steep, you can't. Yet yeah, my body was pushing on and doing it, and hey ho, have an accident. So. Yeah, I think it's so important, like you've just said, to keep your your thoughts, emotions, actions all aligned. And when they're aligned, it's uh, far less likely that you're going to end up getting into trouble.
0: (laughs) Now, Karen... Uh, before I let you head back to your family, do you want to describe uh, your your books? You've got a couple of books there: "If You Fall" and, and "Boundless." Look for, for those of you listening. There's just so much to unpack about uh, Karen's uh, life. I mean, her books would probably be a great place to uh, to follow on from this, and, and of course her website. Um, what was it like writing writing those books?
1: Um, if You Fall, I didn't even plan it to be a book. It was just me writing for me to help myself recover from becoming paralyzed. It was like a cathartic thing. Mm. And then it suddenly became a book. Boundless, I was really fortunate to go on an incredible retreat for a month in the Rocky Mountains at the Banff Mountain Arts Centre. Um, and to have the help of editors, it was like a writing mountain writing program. Um, so that was the result, really, of a month in on this mountain writing program um so that yeah so boundless was a bit more about me exploring the art of writing rather than just getting something out of me and then there is a third book actually which um isn't on amazon it's only on my website and it's more like a collection of short stories around positive psychology i suppose using stories from some of my adventures and sporting experiences and that was that was just fun because i've never written a bunch of short stories before but i think as a pickup kind of quick thing that maybe is help more helpful for the people that's quite a good little book so i uh, i love i love writing actually it's a, a passion as well so oh, word craft
0: <laughs> fantastic yeah i i also like writing and i wrote a blog uh two weeks after my accident and all the way through and it like you'd mentioned before it's a cathartic thing to 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 get things off your chest but also you know the benefit also for others that that may be able to have a deeper insight into how you're you're managing things and and for them to reflect on their own life so so i think it's um it's a great thing to do so for for those listening there um where are you most active uh, on online karen where can people follow along and and join in uh, your community i'm not as active as uh, as i probably
1: could be or should be i'm really too busy living rather than being on social media but so um facebook's probably where i put most stuff actually um when i do things that's usually where i'm a bit more active than anything else but i have got twitter and instagram and my website so i do from time to time put stuff on there as well so yeah um but i'm not a, i'm I'm afraid I'm not a social media addict guru who's on there all the time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you, you do pretty well. I, I see, um, I mean, I've, I follow you on, on all of those channels and I see I see posts that come through. And uh, yeah, and so I think people can feel as though they, they can um, keep reasonably uh, updated with what, what you're doing. Um and what what else, did, yeah. uh, aside from Tokyo, what else does uh, the future hold for you? you got any other other um, plans in place? Um,
1: well, the next Quest 79 ride will be in the autumn this year. So that's going to be from Britain down the Atlantic coast, across the Pyrenees and, and then follow the Camino de Santiago pilgrimage route across northern Spain. So excited about that. And my 15-year-old nephew is going to come along for part of that too um And then, yeah, we'll see. I don't know Tokyo. I'll I'll know more this summer when I start racing and see how that goes. And then there's the ultimate quest 79 journey, which I have not quite figured out financially or practically how to do yet. But that is the Antarctic continent, <laughs> so that's a, a big challenge to work on.
0: <laughs> oh, wow! Holy moly! Okay, Karen. Hey, also, well, I'll, I'll leave I'll leave it in in peace and. Um Uh, there thanks so much for joining me on the podcast I really appreciate your time I know it's quite late there in Spain now and uh, yeah so thanks so much for for joining me thank
1: you thanks Mike
0: awesome thanks Karen that was that was fab I really appreciate it I'll uh, I'll get that edited what we'll do is uh, write a write a story uh, based on the interview and um, once that's uh, up on the website I'll um, I'll share some links and some collateral for that what I would like uh, is uh, some photos f- from you I'm not sure if you know, look at your website here do you have is there photos I can grab off the website or um, what yeah I- grab
1: it grab an, grab anything you can off there if it's usable and if not I can send you a few things through by email okay if you need anything in uh, higher res or anything.
0: Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, high res is, is really good. I'll um I'll take a look on your website and then if there's anything else, I'll send you a a Dropbox link that you can just upload okay. to Dropbox.
1: Yeah. Good. Thank you. Nice or, to
0: meet you-ish. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, if you find yourself down in New Zealand, be sure to look me up. Um, and thanks, I will, I will. Awesome. Hey, thanks. Have a great night.
1: And you. Let me know if you're in Mallorca, okay?
0: Will do. Bye, Cheers.
1: Bye. 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 bye.
0: I hope you enjoyed the podcast and meeting today's Adaptifier. To learn more about Adaptify and the products we have in development, products that will increase freedom for wheelchair users, go to adaptify.com. That's A-D-A-P-T-D-E-F-Y dot com. We're also on all the major social media platforms at Adaptify. Follow us there for more behind-the-scenes looks and more up-to-date information on product releases. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. Look forward to catching you next time.